At the Pass is sponsored by City Seltzer. Flavorful, refreshing, and delicious sparkling water made for everyone right here in Ottawa. Non-alcoholic and available in four delicious flavors, City Seltzer is naturally calorie and sugar-free. My favorite is the orange cream flavor. It's refreshing and delicious, but not overly sweet. It's like they found the perfect balance of flavor and carbonation to create a satisfying alternative to alcohol or soda. It is genuinely thirst-quenching, and I really enjoy it. Every can of City Seltzer supports Ottawa River Keepers and their mission to keep the watershed clean for all generations and all species. City Seltzer is the perfect drink for working at the pass, between beers, or anytime. Order your cans at cityseltzer.ca or find them at better grocery stores, cafes, and restaurants around town. City Seltzer. All bubbles, no troubles. This episode is also brought to you by North and Navy Olive Oil. Since Chris and I opened Nona, it's always been a dream of ours to offer high-quality olive oil under our brand. It was important to us not just to repackage something that you could get at any grocery store, and we finally made a connection that allowed us to do just that. Aurelius is a local company that imports olive oil directly from a single farm north of Rome. The first time we tasted the product, we knew it was unique. It reminds us of olive oil that we've tasted on our travels to Italy. And the reason for this is pretty simple. Freshness. Olive oil is a simple product. There are not a lot of interventions. The compounds that make olive oil taste great are incredibly volatile. They don't like sun, they don't like heat, and they definitely break down over time. Because this product comes directly to Ottawa, there's not a lot of hours spent in warehouses. We receive small amounts, bottle them, Chris usually puts the wax on himself, and then they go straight to you. So if you're looking to step up your olive oil game, you can buy it at North and Navy, on our website, or at boroughshop.bucipop.com. Hello and welcome to At The Pass. I'm your host, Adam Vetterell, and this is a show about the Ottawa restaurant scene for the Ottawa restaurant scene. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to At The Pass. Typically on this show, I try to reach out into the community and speak with people who are doing something interesting in Ottawa's food scene, and I want to get to know them better. Today, I'm bringing you someone I know very well, and I think all of you would benefit from knowing better. My guest today is Eric Chinois-Emily, the chef de cuisine at North and Navy. When Eric first started at Nona, he was a quiet but very determined cook. He quickly became one of the most reliable people in the kitchen. His station was always clean, his mise en place was always tight. He showed interest in all aspects of the Nona kitchen. He was keen to master the pasta station, to participate in the curing program and the pickling and jarring program. If you're a young cook with ambitions to work your way to become a chef, then this episode is for you. The way Eric worked his way through all the stations, then became sous chef, and finally CDC, was the perfect example of how things are supposed to happen in a professional kitchen, and unfortunately for our industry, extremely rare. Before we get into all this, I first want to say good morning, Eric. Morning. All right. So I'm sure you're familiar with the format to this show. Uh, So let's uh, start by talking about how you became interested in becoming a chef, and we'll work your way through uh, your journey before you ended up at North and Navy. Started pretty young. Um, when I was a little kid, I was always kind of hanging out in the kitchen, just like seeing what was going on. Um, my mom had a home daycare, so she was always taking care of the the kids there, and I just always wanted to help out. Um, and then, as far as like figuring out that that could actually be a career, uh, I guess that was more when I was a teenager uh, in school. And a lot of times they'd be talking about you know what you can do later on, and it's always the typical stuff that comes up. So either going more into sciences or more university-driven courses, um, but none of that really interested me at the time. And then I remember talking uh, with my family a bit and seeing some TV shows and stuff and, and realizing, oh, like cooking could be an avenue. Uh, and it just hadn't occurred to me that something I liked that much could actually turn into to a career path. Uh, but once I figured that out, that was 
pretty set on choosing that. Uh, started out a bit more interested in uh, pastry overall. Uh, bakeries were always kind of a place that uh, my, my family would always go for uh, breakfast. Uh, there was one downtown called the Moulin Provence. Mm-hmm. My family would always go there, and I always got the chocolates in with the hot chocolate there. Uh, so when I was uh, looking for some programs through uh, school, uh, there were some co-op ones that we could do, and I ended up choosing uh, the Moulin Provence as uh, my first spot. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of it was really cool to go to somewhere where, when I was a little kid, that was kind of my favorite spot, and then be able to participate in that. Uh, I just realized that. You were probably doing your co-op there as a high school student while I was working at Domus. Uh, it was probably quite at the probably same time. Yeah. <laughs> like, like four doors down on Murray Street. Yeah, that would have been like two thousand eight or two thousand nine, I think. For yeah, me. But, that yeah. checks out. <laughs> All right, so so after co-op, when did uh, where did you go after that? Uh, so yeah, I did. Well, I did a couple of co-ops during school, uh, and there, there's actually a really interesting program um, that I did in eleventh grade, and it was a, a focus one. Uh, so that was actually through Leste Collegial and uh, a trade high school connected to it called uh, Minto. Um, and that, that, I think, was a really great uh, program for me to be in because uh, the, the way the, the week was broken down, uh, you'd do two days of uh, theory classes uh, and a bit of cooking with your high school instructor. We had one day of actual college courses, uh, so I actually got a few of my credits done uh, early. Uh, which was also pretty cool at that age, uh, and then two days of co-op. So it was kind of the, the best introduction to a trade. Mm-hmm. And that, that school did everything from construction to uh, um, hairstylists and cooking as well. So just any more trade-oriented courses that you could do. That's pretty incredible. That's like yeah. there's so much talk these days about like reforming the education system and stuff, and that's such a good example of something that actually works like getting kids who aren't necessarily keen on going to university and helping them pick a lane early on and getting a big head start on their careers. Yeah, th- well, and I think it's important to showcase that trades are a route as well. Uh, like, like I was saying, at first I was kind of frustrated looking at the only things they were kind of pushing in the in the classes in school, particularly when you're doing the, the sort of more like pre-university level high school stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't really guide you in that direction. Well, that it's hopefully gotten better now. I, I think already the, the expansion of some of these programs is proof that there's, there's more care putting into that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just kind of felt like the beginning of that, that, that high school, I think had 50 students when I was there and I, I was speaking to somebody recently and apparently now it's up to a couple hundred. So wow. that's good to see. So after, after you finished your co-op, did you go straight into like a real kitchen job? Uh, yeah. So, uh, I started college after that. And then, uh, my first real kitchen job, if you will, uh, was actually at a, uh, Kelsey's, uh, so a bit more corporate and, but I think for the age I was at, I think about 18 when I started there, it was great because it, it's really big on, uh, on speed and you still have to be organized. Um, it's maybe not the same level of thing that you're doing in, in more fine dining restaurants. Uh, a lot of stuff comes out of packages and, yeah, it's it's not difficult food, but you do a crazy amount of volume. You know? mm-hmm. You're you're stuck on a grill station, sometimes doing pan work as well, sometimes calling tickets as well, and you're you're doing a night where you're serving 150 people. So, yeah, I always find like a lot of people, a lot of cooks that have worked for us at North and Navy and and other restaurants I've been at, um, the people who start their career in the more corporate places, I as long as they're really keen later in their career, but it's a great place to start because 
those those companies invest a lot of money on how they onboard people and the training is actually uh, really thorough and, and good. And, and that's something I think smaller fine dining restaurants often lack. They kind of just throw you into the mix and expect you just to be able to to figure everything out. And there's some people who can do that, but most people need uh, like a lot more guidance. So yeah, I find those places are, are like, it's it's common to like shit all over those places and yeah. act like they're like destroying the industry. And they are in a lot of different ways, but but that's one thing they do well is if if you get a job there, it'll it'll teach you sort of the basics of how to like move around in a kitchen with a bumping into people and burning yourself yeah well and, and just the organization of it like you say it's more structured so it's there there's a bit more system to to fall back mm-hmm. on so like, like it's kind of more on rails in that sense yeah but that but that does help you develop those skills without the panic of also having to cook as aggressively yeah and learn a bunch of recipes on the fly yeah and, and all that stuff um so so after that job did you uh did you decide to go to fine dining straight away or was that always your goal to, to find yourself in a fine dining restaurant? Early in my career, I didn't have a specific goal of where I wanted to be. I, I just enjoyed the cooking and, and just wanted to immerse myself in anything related. I, I didn't really have a finite goal. Um, I mean, as you know me now, I'm just always interested in whatever the, the new thing I, I don't know is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, when I was in school, yeah, I, I did my first year in pastry, uh, and then I did the culinary management program, and that's where things kind of shifted it in my mind, where uh, I had this job at Kelsey's, uh, and I knew I wanted to get out of that environment, but I didn't know exactly towards what. Uh, so doing doing school was good, where um, through through the college, there was a lot of those offsite events where you would work with different chefs. And I remember doing one with uh, Johnny Karecki uh, from Side Door. Mm-hmm. And then that was kind of what I, I had my eye on as as a place to go after. Um, so I, th- I think it was maybe like a month before I was set to graduate. Uh, I just came downtown, uh, dropped off my resume, see how it went, and then luckily got a, a stage and got hired after that. So you started working at Side Door. Yeah. How long were you there for? Uh, I was there for about three years. It felt like more, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Side door, from what I remember, is just like because because you're not the only one who who I worked with who came from there, and, yeah. and that place, especially in the early days, just sounded like the most hectic, like busy, like everything made from scratch and like 300 covers a night sort of place. And uh, yeah, it, it got pretty hectic. De- definitely on the Friday, Saturday, you could have those kind of nights. Um, pretty large dining room, and there's this big banquet area in the back where you could mm-hmm. do almost 100 people just there. Um, Oftentimes more like standing events, uh, but that, yeah, that was that was a cool experience too because um, you you kind of get to learn the organization of both an a la carte restaurant, but also large scale events, um, and kind of doing them both at the same time, which can definitely be a bit overwhelming. But yeah, and it was it was a good spot where uh, in the early days they were very strict about uh, quality of your mise en place, and even though it was. Some people would say J- just tacos or something like that. It, everything was still done from scratch and with a lot of care. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and, and it's a good, uh, that's something that's really hard to combine is like when you're doing some like huge volume, but you still want to maintain like a high standard. It's it's like a, the, the ultimate test of a, of a line cook. Yeah. Um, so that's what I think when you came to North and Navy, I kind of described you at the beginning as like the quiet uh, guy <laughs> who sort of flew under the radar for a while, but like gradually just became this like super reliable cook. And I think maybe part of that was that you had this experience at a place that did much bigger volume than North and Navy did. So 
even though maybe you were learning a bunch of new techniques and a new new recipes and stuff, you at least weren't intimidated by the amount of work that you were asked to do. But uh, but instead of letting me describe what you were like in the beginning, why don't you describe sort of what it was like to first start at Nona and sort of walk us through how you eventually ended up being the CDC? Because I know the story, but <laughs> not everyone else does. Yeah, I mean, I had done a little bit of uh, traveling. Um, don't have to go too far into that. But uh, basically, when we were coming back to Canada... We had a couple of floater jobs at first. I'd passed through um, some wineries in uh, Niagara, um, did a did a vintage season there, which was fun. Um, and then when we were coming back to Ottawa, uh, at first I had this uh, this gig lined up where I was going to help uh, open a place. And interestingly, it was going to be a, a butchery connected to a restaurant. Uh, so it was kind of serendipitous that when I came to Nona, there was the the charcuterie program there, which was something that I kind of had my my mind on anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, that, that whole project fell through and then needed some work because, uh, yeah, Gabby was starting her, her job, I think, like a two weeks from, from where we were sitting at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd contacted uh, uh, Ben Langerville from, uh, from Side Door, mm-hmm. uh, and then he gave me your name, so I reached out to you. I think it was pretty quick, if I remember the, the email you sent me, you kind of just said, yeah, come on in, we need someone. But Yeah, huh. Ben's good people, so when he said, I yeah. got a guy, I was like, yeah, sure, send him over. <laughs> Yeah, I felt like that went a long way. So that, that was mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really know very what what to expect exactly. Uh, I remember having seen the restaurant online, and went, that was it was kind of on our list to at least go eat at when we came back to Ottawa. Uh, but just worked out well for taking a job. Uh, when I first came in, yeah, I was just overwhelmed with all the Italian words that I didn't really know because <laughs> most of what I had cooked up until was not at all Italian. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I liked that everything was done in house, uh, and I, I remember you, you and Steve showed me the uh, the curing room, which I think was still in its infancy at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that in, in my head, I was just like, okay, I can work here. That's like that that I'm interested in, and yeah, definitely the pasta. It was something that I'd done, you know, maybe some basic uh, fresh pasta like anybody does with the more like the the machine cut ones. Yeah, uh, but. I'd never really seen any of the shapes that uh, that that you guys were doing. Uh, it's like the I remember the Corzetti and the Scarpinock were two that just kind of flipped my my perception on on what pasta was, and, and realizing that there's this deep rabbit hole of all sorts of shapes and flavors that you can play with. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's sort of what like when when people new people start at North and Navy, they get really excited about the pasta station or really excited about the charcuterie uh, yeah. program. And uh, and you kind of got really excited about both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I just want to kind of get a sense of, because uh, I've actually never asked you this, uh, when you were working your way through the stations at North and Navy, did you ever think like, I, I want to be the sous chef of this place or I want to be the, was that like your intention? Because you, you were never sort of like bullish about it. It, it, it more felt, felt like I had to ask you most of the time. Um, so, so was that something that was part of your goal, uh, or, or is that something that just sort of happened organically because you were there for the longest and just usually the best cook in the kitchen? I think when I when I first started, I it's not like I wanted to hunt for it. I guess like I I, I just don't have the personality that I'm going to be so competitive with someone, right? Like if, if there's somebody in that position, it it wouldn't occur to me to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to get that guy's job one day. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, but, uh, but definitely I, I thought it was a place that I could spend some time at, uh, the food just really got me excited and 
yeah, I, I, but I guess I, I was interested in moving up in a position of that sort. Uh, I had done not not to the same caliber, but a bit of uh, more like sous chef work before. So I was just interested in, in continuing sort of that part of my career. Um, and I, I think it just worked out pretty serendipitously with uh, Steve leaving, what, I think three or four months after I'd started. Mm. So when, when, I, when he mentioned that he was leaving, I guess that's it, it kind of clicked in my head there. I'm like, oh. Maybe I can try to show up for that. <laughs> awesome. Well, it worked out well for me because uh, Chris and I have often said to each other that like we would have never been able to consider opening a place like uh, Cantina Gia and basically leaving North and Navy alone for, for a bunch of months if it wasn't for you and Gabby. So uh, I'm just going to say thank you for that. And this whole podcast is an excuse for <laughs> to say thank you. But, um, but now I want to get into stuff that's a little more uh, nerdy and interesting. I want to mm-hmm. talk about... Uh, the charcuterie program, because I think of all the contributions you've made to North and Navy, uh, the, the charcuterie program is something that I think is really on another level to, from something the city has seen. So I'm going to describe it a little bit, but then you can take over and describe sort of your your point of view on it. Mm-hmm. At North and Navy, we started, it was always something we wanted to do is to, to cure meat in-house. It's something I've done at other restaurants I've worked at, something I personally feel very passionately about. and um, and And it's just it's more of like a hobby in it. And it's like this way of turning, you know, owning a restaurant into facilitating this incredible hobby. Um, and Stephen McGregor, the, the original, uh, uh, chef there, he and I, we started working really hard on, on sort of setting up the room and, and sourcing the best possible quality pork for the products and stuff. And we got the ball rolling. And after he left, something that happened that maybe wasn't part of our plan, but it ended up working out for the best is we, we got inspected. Uh, a health inspector came in and unlike a lot of the health inspectors, and I, and I hate to be the one to break this to those people who aren't in restaurants, but typical health inspectors really don't know what they're talking about and, and are actually worryingly underqualified in my opinion. Uh, but this guy was not one of those. He, he seemed to know everything about everything and he figured out, like just by looking at a temperature sheet that we had recorded that we had a curing program somewhere in the building. And so we ended up having to show it to him. And luckily for us, though, he was willing to work with us to make sure that we got it up to code and um, we met all the the requirements that, uh, which was something I didn't even know was possible. I just assumed you would never be allowed to do it in a restaurant. But yeah. uh, he he definitely uh, walked us through how you could do that. And, uh, and you were really instrumental on making sure that we ticked all the boxes we needed to tick and, and followed all the rules properly. So um, if you want to sort of talk through some of the the details of what it's like from getting a piece of meat into the restaurant to serving it on a plate, the steps that lead there and how we do it at North and Navy, I think that'd be pretty interesting for a lot of the uh, people who listen to this. Well, like you were saying, like uh, you and Steve had already sort of set up the the room. So I, I think all the, the bones were there when I finally got involved. And, and certainly like Steve kind of, passed the torch in a way for that. I remember in the last few weeks before you left, uh, um, that I'd shown specific interest in that program. And, and, uh, we were staying after hours and he was kind of showing me the setup and, and, uh, at least the products that we were doing at the time. And then I remember you passing me the, uh, Olympia provision book, uh, which I think that's, that's probably what I can thank the most for most of the knowledge that we've uh, developed over the years. Uh, certainly, their their base recipes are kind of what I go to for for ratios at all points. Um, and yeah, as far as the product goes, um, 
So we work with a supplier who deals with a, a company out in Perth, um, Perth Pork Company. And yeah, they, they breed uh, Berkshire and uh, Tamworth pigs. And we actually get their hybrid breed, uh, which just the, the fat ratio, I think, is is more appropriate for what, what we do for the charcuterie. Because as much as everybody always talks about animals wanting like, oh, yeah, you, you want it really fatty and stuff like that. It's that can also be greasy if it's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really depends what you're doing with it. Uh, in our in our case, having a, a nice ratio of lean to fat, I think, is is always important. Um, I think that our, our copa is probably the best example of why you want that perfect ratio. Yeah, so we'll we'll get in generally primal cuts, uh, so midsections, uh, Boston butts, um, occasionally some some other pieces. Uh, we've worked with some some head as well, uh, Morphodine, uh, Copa de Testa, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Guanciale, the, those we get in uh, pre-cut as well. Uh, but uh, the the product will come in generally. We do in fairly big lots, uh, just so that. When we rotate stuff into the curing room, it's not just piecemeal, you know, two, three pieces at a time. Well, I guess it's been a while now, but we, we used to do uh, once a year uh, what we would call our uh, pig day, uh, which <laughs> I, th- I think that's one of my favorite Nona traditions. That uh, Yeah, but the, now that we're sort of on the tail end of the pandemic, I, yeah, I'm yeah. looking really forward to the next pig day because that is my my favorite uh, sort of tradition at North and Navy, too. It's yeah. a whole day of curing pork. But I thought it, I thought it was cool too because we would uh, bring in some of the front of house staff too that would want to learn a little bit more about the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the cooks that's interesting because it's it's not a lot of restaurants where you get to work with these large um, cuts of meat, um, let alone go go through the curing process. Uh, but yeah, so we get in our, our primals. Uh, we'll break those down, and then uh, we have two methods that we use for curing. Uh, larger pieces, we do what's called a salt box cure. Uh, so that will, uh, it's as easy as it sounds, just a ton of salt in a box, basically <laughs> covering the product. Uh, you can add a bunch of uh, aromatics at that point and then let that sit in the fridge uh, generally about two weeks. De- depends on the size of the of the cut of meat. Um, and then that salt slowly penetrates the meat, making it safe. Uh, or the other one we do is a equilibrium curing. Uh, which I, I think is the most foolproof one, and I think the one that our, our inspector appreciated the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where we um, uh, put everything in uh, sous vide bags. Uh, but what's nice about it is we can use a very specific ratio of salt to meat, uh, which allows us control both for flavor, but also to make sure that it's food safe. So we do use very specific amounts of uh, nitrates and nitrites uh, mixed in with salt, and then... And essentially, we'll do a 4% by weight of the, the meat product that we're doing. And then that hangs out in a sous vide bag for give or take two weeks again. Um, and what's nice in the sous vide bag is all, all of that salt pushes out the, the purge from the, the meat. Um, and then the salt gets absorbed. So you reach perfect osmosis at the end of those two weeks. And that, that's just the best case scenario for starting that process. Yeah, I think from from my perspective, once we... Once we sort of really mastered the the um, the equilibrium method, that's when the the program went like, in my opinion, to like a sort of a, a level that I was really proud of. Something yeah. like when I was putting that on plates for the restaurant, I was feeling like I was feeling like this this is rare in Ottawa. Like it was just more consistent. Where yeah. you know, in the, in the past, we'd have um, 
some some ups and downs in in terms of quality and and of course our policy is if, if it doesn't if something looks remotely questionable we we just throw it out we're mm-hmm. not gonna mess around with that yeah um i think especially in the early days when i was a lot more paranoid about that but uh yeah and, and it it was it's it's something that you you should be paranoid about it's, yeah oh yeah there's not too many things you can do in a kitchen where if you mess up you could kill somebody no. and this is definitely one of them so so there isn't uh, there isn't too much paranoia uh it's always the right amount of paranoia but it, that being said the more we do it and the, and the the more we learn about it and a lot of the research we've been doing it, it makes us more comfortable knowing that what we're doing is safe and and sort of uh yeah going through that process the hasab process and stuff mm. that that it just set my mind at ease because it was always something like whenever we serve pickled or jarred uh, items in the restaurant or or cured meats, it's it's something always in the back of my mind that this could be the one mistake here. It could be the thing that brings the whole yeah. thing down. So uh, it's but high I, risk, but high reward. Yeah, I, I agreed. Going through that process was, was kind of, uh, yeah, like set, set my mind at ease too, uh, especially that some of the things that we were doing before uh, maybe out of an abundance of caution, uh, but just kind of felt vindicated that those are actually the steps that mm-hmm. that uh, the health inspector wants to see. Because um, I was just doing things based on what we'd read in the book and on some forums and stuff that that I use for for ideas there, and we were pretty sure that it was good. But it was nice to hear from a health inspector that yeah, actually this is good. And sometimes he'd even say that for the size of program we have, it was it was kind of overkill. But yeah, but I prefer that. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'd rather tick more boxes than yeah. not enough boxes. Yeah, exactly. So the curing program is a good example at North and Navy of starting with a technique and ending with a dish. And so when we're doing a dish, which is built around curing, it's it's we're very light handed. Like usually, if you get cured meat at North and Navy, there's a few garnishes, if that, and we're just really letting the product speak for itself. Yeah. Um, and that's typically personally my favorite way to approach a dish is to is to find a product that I like, do make my intervention, which is um which I personally think brings out the best possible flavor of that product, and then build the dish around that, but making sure I don't overdo the the garnish because I want yeah. the the flavor. So you you're the first person really uh, in the history of North and Navy, who's sort of gotten to put quite a few dishes on the menu uh, and to oversee other people putting the dishes on the menu. So I'm curious, now that I have you on tape, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just if you want to talk through sort of your approach to coming up with menus at, at, at North and Navy, because we we you kind of took over with, there's already a formula in place and, and sort of like menu items that that sort of always had to be there and that yeah. sort of thing. But there is a lot of room to play at a restaurant like North and Navy. And so do, do you find you like to start with the ingredient first or, or a technique or, or, or is it a mix of the two? How do you, how do you usually approach it? It's, it's definitely a mix. I, I think it depends on the dish. Um, and at, at a certain point, even just the time of year, uh, as weird as that might seem, but there, there's, uh, as cooks will know, the the summer is a bit more exciting when when you get all sorts of farm product coming in. Uh, so it's it's pretty easy to be inspired. Uh, but the winter months can kind of slow down a little bit when you're having to deal with a bit more commercial product uh, or just less variety as well. Um, but I I think sometimes those restrictions can be a good thing. Like you said, having a bit of a template at, at North and Navy. I think at first 
felt a little bit constricting, uh, but I, I think ultimately is is a, a good thing to have. Prior to working at the restaurant, I, like most people, didn't really realize there was much of a difference between Northern and, and Southern Italian cooking. And ju- just largely out of simple ignorance, just hadn't really explored that, um, that cuisine very much. And what I had seen was either things in, in uh, restaurants around town or, or just the basic things you see on TV, which are often more representative of uh, Sicilian cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's, it just doesn't do justice to, to everything that's out there. But yeah, if we're, if we're starting out, I think my favorite time of year is kind of what's coming up now, the, the springtime where we're, we're in talks with the farmers um, and uh, we're, we're kind of discussing what they're going to be growing for the season and that already kind of sparks ideas in my mind um, where I'll, I'll, I'll kind of start out with like a vague thought of, oh, I, I know this product is coming up. Like we're, we'll, we'll have uh, ramps coming in soon. What's, what's something we can do with that? And then I think oftentimes it's either a, a revisit of something we've done in the past uh, or I might just get kind of a, a, a spurt idea in my head where it, it starts off pretty... Um, elaborate and then i usually try to uh, trim it down um yeah so once i'm kind of decided on either um a, a product i want to work with or maybe a new technique that i want to try out uh i just kind of try a few different things to start uh if it's more of like a traditional recipe that i want to play off of i'll just start by making that classic dish uh, as is a couple of times just to get an idea of, of the the flavors and how they work and then if I have uh, more of a technique in mind for uh, how I want the final plate to be, then we'll sort of play with those original flavors and, and refine it down that way. Yeah, but I, I think largely just taking seasonal inspiration is, has been uh, our, our best method. I find the, like, it's something we talk about a lot, but how the the seasons in Northern Italy are very similar to the seasons we get here. So yeah. it's, it's almost like there's already this playbook we can follow. Like in the spring, you're going to want Reese BC on the menu and you're going to want, there's, there's, there's things to do, but I, but I also find we have the most fun and we come up with the best dishes when we start with what is a very traditional dish. Like the one I yeah. always think of is like bolito misto yeah. was, was something that, that, uh, you know, I got to taste when I was in Piedmont in a very, very classic dish, but, sort of put our own twist on it, add our own ingredients that are exclusive to here. Uh, the other example I always give is like uh, vongole, which is a pasta mm-hmm. that's eaten all over Italy, but in the north they do sort of like a light tomato sauce with it. But it's the perfect example for us to do because I actually think the clams we can get in Canada are significantly better than the clams you can get in Italy. So we can do an Italian dish better than the Italians can do it, not because uh, we're, we're better cooks, but we just because we get a better product. So yeah, well, that that's definitely part of the fun is uh, kind of studying the, these older recipes and, and traditions and then seeing how we can apply them to to Canadian product. Um, yeah, I think an, another good one for that is the, the Vitello Tonato or something like that, where we're, we're taking the ideas of a classic dish and then working with those flavors, but trying to do something something else with it i guess but. Mm-hmm. yeah just make sure that we add something to it yeah uh and there's no shame in doing something the exact way you know it's traditionally supposed to be done yeah i think we always have a good mix of that where we'll, we'll have a few dishes on the menu that really are just as traditional as we can and then mm-hmm. a few other ones that we get a bit more uh creative with but 
Yeah, it's like if you're going to put bugle in salsa, you don't want to do anything because yeah. it's like the perfect pasta as it is. But uh, yeah, sometimes you want to play around and, and have well, and a that, bit of creativity. Yeah, I, I think maybe some more traditionalists would disagree with it, but I, I, I like to think that we do a good job of keeping the um, uh, sort of the heart of the original dishes in in spirit when when we're cooking those mm-hmm. new ones, but. So we, we've mentioned Gabby. You've mentioned Gabby twice. Yeah. <laughs> so for the people who don't know who Gabby is, Gabby is Eric's fiance, and she's also the manager of North and Navy and more or less the general manager of North and Navy and Gia too, who kind of runs, uh, runs a whole bunch of stuff for us. So, um, but she has a, a background in wine, and uh-huh. you also worked in wineries. And one of the things that I think you've shown a lot of strength and, and Gabby's been really helpful with is, is working when we're working on menu items, it seems like the conversation about wine starts more or less, you know, on day one. Like we're we're yeah. we're getting ingredients together, but everyone's already sort of talking about uh, which wines it would taste good. Classic, because because at North Navy we have our favorites that are always sort of on the wine list, so those will get mentioned. Which one we think would taste well, but plus new ones uh, when we're doing tastings. So is that something that you? you've always felt comfortable doing like I, I know Gabby's background in wine goes to her childhood, but yeah. uh, or, or is that something you've sort of added to your repertoire? No, that's definitely something that uh, uh, I, I have Gabby and her, her whole family really to thank for that. Um, mm-hmm. Before we, before we were dating, I, you know, I, I, I would say that I liked wine, but I just had no idea what I liked or not, you know, um, not that there's anything wrong with those products, but I, I was, I just never went out to to buy uh, more expensive bottles of wine because for me it was a bit more um, intimidating at first because mm-hmm. I, I just had no idea. Um, so I would I would always just kind of go for whatever VQA I, I saw around, <laughs> um, which yeah, you know, like like I, I had an interest in exploring what what wines we had, but but again, no no real foothold on where to start. And at the time, I didn't have too many contacts that had the knowledge, I guess, to, to share. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, when, uh, when I met, uh, Gabby's family, uh, like I said, that there's a background wine there. Uh, her, her dad, uh, works for a wine company in uh, Niagara and, um, uh, studied to be a wine uh, maker. So he's, he's very, um, uh, knowledgeable about that, uh, has a huge collection himself. And, uh, he, he grew up in, uh, Bordeaux, um, the, his family home is right on, on, on the vines and, you know, uh, Saint-Emilion's pretty nearby. So yeah, a lo- lot of influence there. Um, and then even just, uh, kind of spending family time with, uh, Gabby's family kind of opened me up on how to drink wine. Uh, cause they, they're very much, uh, if you're having dinner, you have a glass of wine, but, uh, but everything is kind of like, mixed in with the food it's it's never just drinking for the sake of drinking it's mm-hmm. always uh the appreciation of all the products together uh so gabby's mom is a fantastic cook um and i actually get a lot of inspiration for some of the things we do from her uh she's uh, actually studying in uh, food history now um just got her uh, doctorate so yeah she's she sent me a couple books a few yeah. times that were really interesting she's she's a wealth of knowledge but yeah. uh it's funny just because I find that's something that's really hard for North American cooks because we just don't really have a solid wine culture in this country. And yeah. and as you said, the 
like in France, just it's the same as Italy. Like the conversation, you don't talk about dinner without talking about the wine, right? Like it, yeah. it just sort of they go hand in hand, and it's it's natural to think about both at the same time together. And you learn how to appreciate the two side by side mm-hmm. at a younger age than than I think most uh, Canadians do. Um, where you know, like, sure, my my parents would like sneak us a, a little glass or something once in a while. Don't don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's huh. it's so siloed in in North America. Like, yeah. the chefs think about the food, and then the sommelier comes up with the exactly. Wines. Yeah, uh, and but I think that's obviously changing. Like, pe- people are are sort of thinking. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, alcohol sales is sort of what drives our industry. So it behooves sure. all of us to think about wine all the time. But it's also if you come up with the recipes with the the wines in mind, you're going to end up with a better customer experience. Uh, when I, I think for chefs, that's where tasting different wines becomes important because just like with food, the the more you taste, the more you smell, the the more you sort of develop that that memory um, uh, for your palate as well, and it it just becomes a bit more natural the more you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, yeah, like exactly like how Gabby always grew up was um, even when she was too young to drink it, her her dad would make her smell the wine. And then would would sort of quiz her and be like, "Oh, what does this smell like?" And then she would sort of build that memory, and that that's why I think she's got probably one of the the better noses of anybody I I know is because she spent her her whole childhood being taught to think about what she's smelling actively, and I think that's something that cooks do a bit more naturally with food, right? Like we're, we're the kind of people that as kids you just kind of taste absolutely everything and. You, you you just develop that memory more more naturally, um, but I I think if if you've if you've got that for wine as well, it it just goes hand in hand after that. It's one of the things that you definitely you you have to consider when you're coming up with a menu, and yeah. and it's better if it's preternatural, like obviously, yeah. Uh, and so it's one of those. It's like a it's like an instinct you have to develop as as a cook, and that's something that again I feel like in North America is we're really lagging is, is teaching chefs that element of it uh, is how to think about the food with the wine. Um, So to make sure the meal is like, it goes, the the meal is like one complete uh, table. When I think, I think at North and Navy, what, what makes it so, so easy for that is that we're, we're, we're talking about these things early on in the process of making a dish uh, where if we're sort of in the early stages where it's kind of like my, my alpha test, if you will, of a dish, everybody's tasting it, right? Like we're, mm. we're going to ask the cooks and all the servers to try it because I want as many different palates having an opinion on on the flavor as possible because that's just more representative of what it's going to be like for a guest experience because mm. I, I have my personal taste, you have yours. If I taste the dish, I, I'll have my bias of um, if I think it's good or, or not, but also what I think would go well with it. But if we're kind of looking around the room and nine out of 10 people are agreeing, oh, actually, I think this would be better, then that's the direction I'm going to lean in because we, we, we want to make as many people happy with the, the final product as possible. Um, and and I, I think that's a healthy thing. Like it, it, it might seem like that kind of cuts the, um, the, the creative process in a, in a way, but I, I think it's, it's better to go off of what's good, what do people enjoy, and then bring it to a level where um, where I'm happy with with the final product as well. Mm-hmm. So we just spent a lot of time talking about one of the considerations when you yeah. when you're putting a new item on the menu is is sort of making sure it works with our wine list. Uh, and 
And I think the conversation about wine does something else too. It, it, it bridges the front of house and back house, which is yeah. something that's really important to the culture at North and Navy is making, we, we try our hardest to not have that divide between the front of house and the back of house. And, um, and that conversation between when everyone's around the past and we're trying a new dish together and we're talking about it, I find that conversation gets everyone excited for the new dish. Yeah, exactly. But it also, it also gets everyone involved in the new dish and they yeah. all feel a little bit connected to it. Um, another big consideration that we've had to, to grapple with, especially through the pandemic, and there is, I don't know if you've heard this, but a labor crisis going on in North America. Oh, no, I never noticed. <laughs> and um, I think we've been luckier than most. Yeah, with, with, absolutely. It seems like whenever we want to hire, somebody does walk through the door that, that's really keen and, and excited. So um, it's something we can't complain too much about. But yeah. one of the other big factors that uh, I kind of personally watched you deal with um, as, a, as somebody new to like a leadership position was sort of managing the menu, not for the customers, but for the team in the kitchen, understanding yeah. that you can't just ask anyone to put any dish out and expect it to be good. And ultimately, if you ask someone to do something they're not capable of doing and a bad dish leaves the kitchen, that's on you as the chef. Yeah. So uh, do you want to sort of talk me through your your sort of learning curve in, in that part of uh, running a kitchen, which is something I don't think a lot of people who want to become chefs even think about until they end up in that position and they realize they've made some horrible mistake or something like that. We've had this conversation a lot, but uh, um, being a chef is, is kind of, it's a very interesting shift in the career. Um, and, and I don't think it's as natural as a lot of other career paths where going from cook to chef is almost like changing jobs entirely. Mm-hmm. And just because you're the best cook doesn't necessarily mean those skills are going to translate to being a good chef. Um, it, it's kind of like going from uh, being a, a, a musician to, to um, leading the orchestra where it's, it, they're not the same thing. And uh, oftentimes the, the absolute best musicians aren't necessarily the ones that are going to be able to coach everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the same is true for, for cooks and chefs where when, when you become the chef, you don't necessarily need to be the best cook. You just need to figure out how to get the best out of the cooks that you're working with. Um, and I, I think that was a real struggle for me at first because I, I definitely think like a line cook first. Um, and certainly when I was on the line, uh, like you say, I'm very quiet and uh, method driven on how I set my things up and uh, maybe a bit too particular where <laughs> <laughs> like I, I like things just so. And, and if it's not like that, I get very frustrated on, on a station. Um, so kind of having to learn how to accept that not everybody is going to do things the same way definitely took a lot of work. I, th- I think that's, that's taken me years to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's, it's also been one of the better parts of my career is, is learning how to make that shift and going from producing to also teaching other people. Uh, and as far as developing the menu for that goes, yeah, it's uh, like in the early days, I think it was difficult to accept that there was maybe certain techniques or something that somebody not necessarily couldn't do, but just largely either didn't have an interest in developing to that degree uh, or just it, it was too stressful to do with with the kind of volume that that we're at and realizing that, OK, maybe there's a limit to what we can throw on and and still have a, a good final product at the end of the day uh and i i think that we've come a long way in in trying to make sure that there's a balance there and a practice a practicality to 
how things are going to be done on the line. Yeah, there's a big difference between like pushing yourself and pushing the team mm-hmm. and like abusing yourself and abusing the team. And, and yeah. I found you were guilty in the early days of being just like, I'll just do it myself sort of attitude. Yes. <laughs> and and it's very easy to work 100 hours a week yeah. if that's the attitude you take, which is ultimately not sustainable. You're not no. going to end up with the best product. Your team is getting mad all the time. Yeah, you're just in a bad mood all the time and your team doesn't learn anything. And, it, and it's funny, there's so much talk in our industry right now about, you know, it, it seems like everyone my age is is finally telling their horror stories about uh, yeah. sort of, you know, the abusive the kitchen. Really <laughs> and, and the people who came before me had it even worse. And, and yeah. it seems like it's been it's been getting better. And we're now finally talking about, uh, you know, the, the sort of uglier side of the industry. But when you when you find yourself in charge, it suddenly becomes very clear why people went the, that route. Yeah. And it's like, just because it's easier, because it, you're basically asking people to do the impossible a lot of the time. And yeah. and so a lot of people concluded the only way to make them do that was to scream at them and to make them more scared of what would happen if they didn't do it than yeah. they did. When I, and I think sometimes that, like not at all to excuse that behavior, but I think it comes from a place of stress uh, for that person too. And, and now having been in both those positions... I can understand that that frustration, right? Where it's you're you're kind of panicked too because now this responsibility is on your shoulders and you want to make sure that the quality continues. So if you're if you're watching people around you not hold things to that same standard, it just gets very frustrating because especially if you've been put in that position, it's kind of assumed that you're you're the kind of person who always strives for those standards. Mm-hmm. So it can be difficult to understand why somebody else isn't willing to put that same level of effort in um, or, or sometimes just maybe doesn't see the things that, that you see, right. Where uh, it, it's easy to, to think that something is, is obvious, but that's something I've learned over the years is it's not always obvious. So yeah. it, until you've made it obvious to that person, it's not really fair to, to get that frustrated. But I think it's the, it, that's the language that we always learned was, yeah, like either, either to berate people into doing it right or more my method of just, uh, I'll just do it myself then because that felt easier than putting the time into showing the person how, how to do it. Yeah. And I think from, from the perspective of like Chris and I, we've also attacked that problem from the top, which is, you know, North and Navy has typically one more cook per service than, you know, the same restaurant would have, you know, say when, when I was coming up like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, we just, we, so we, we attacked the problem just by spreading the labor out between more people, yeah. which means less stress per person. And, and the other, and then there's other ch- structural changes we've made, like, um, paying, uh, more money than what is average in the industry. And also the four day work week is yeah. I find in my personal opinion, and I'm wondering if you agree to me with mm-hmm. me, but I find the four day work week was the thing that made the biggest most noticeable change in terms of like the general mood in the kitchen, the quality, the consistency, all of those things. Once we got to the four day work week, I think it just suddenly felt like it was easy to, to be a good restaurant. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if you agree, but uh, yeah, it, I, I think it's, it's definitely a healthy shift in the industry to be going towards that. And, um, and that's, that's definitely something that, that I've always respected uh, Chris and your attitude on it. Um, even when I first started uh, at Nona, that that was something that that attracted me too. Was um, 
having a benefits package, which for independent restaurants is, uh, I think it's getting more popular now and that that's good, but felt unheard of at the time. Um, and yeah, the, the four day work week at first felt very alien for me. And I think like a lot of cooks coming into it at first, I was worried, well, am I, am I going to get enough hours to, Mm -hmm. um, to do my thing? But, uh, um, yeah, I, I think you definitely see the results with, uh, with the cooks and the culture that, that we've developed. Um, for one thing, there's far less turnover. Uh, I, I think North Navy is a, a very unique restaurant for that, where the average cook stays there for at least two years, if not more, um, which most places I've worked at in the past, you'd have a few people that kind of stuck around that long. Oftentimes the, the grumpiest, most jaded ones in that kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd have some people that they'd, you'd be lucky if they lasted six months. Um, and I, I think that points to something if that's what's happening uh, in the culture of the restaurants. Uh, I think that the typical thing you would see in sort of the more traditional kitchens is, is that sort of turn and burn mentality uh, where we're just trying to get the most out of cooks while they're there and not really taking into account how that's impacting them. And then on the flip side for the cooks, the attitude going into these restaurants is, okay, like maybe this is more than what I want to do, but I'm learning something right now. Mm. And then what happens is after that six months, when that cook has learned what they came to that restaurant to learn, then they're just going to go somewhere else because there's no more incentive to work there. If, uh, if they're no longer learning and they're frustrated with the environment, why, why would they stay? Yeah, it, it totally switches the mentality where, and I, I was definitely, you know, guilty of working way too much when I was younger. And, and I can, I can remember like after like day five or six in around day five or six in a row, you get into like survival mode. Uh, and so it's less about like, you know, refining techniques and, and all this. It's more like just get through the day, do what I need to do to get through the day. And, and you're not, you're no longer like building uh, your skill set. You're no longer adding anything to the restaurant. You're just literally just punching a clock and, yeah. and trying not to faint. <laughs> and uh, and and I think there was like this sort of like macho attitude yeah, in, in kitchens where people would be they would just straight up act like it wasn't bothering them. But you know, I'm as physically fit and stubborn as anybody. And if I'm tired, then. I promise you, you're more tired than I am. Yeah, and and so I, once I got over that sort of like that that sort of competition to see who could be the most tired. Yeah, which is, it, well, just realizing it it doesn't need to be that way because I, I I think there there's a lot of chefs that just think like that's that's just how it is in a kitchen, and a lot of cooks kind of get taught that um, even in culinary school they'll kind of warn you that that's that's the reality of of working in a restaurant. Um, and, and I, I think, yeah, there's a, a a bit of this like self-flagellation mentality too, where, where it's, you, you kind of get taught to think, uh, oh, like if, if I'm tired or if I'm not doing this correctly, well, that's my fault. And so the only way to fix that is to stay and, and try again and, and do it more. And that the, it's the, the onus is always on the individual and not on the environment. And, and I, I think that's just a, a toxic way to to run a business in general. Um, and especially in one where everybody's working hard, it's, it's not a, an easy industry to work in. It's a really hot, steamy environments in, <laughs> in the kitchen. Um, it's, it's still long hours, even with those four day work weeks, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to do 
a 10 or 12 hour day. Yeah. Um, but I think that becomes much more enjoyable when you're afforded the time to, to rest and to reset. And you see it in, in the, the food where I think uh, in these old school kitchens where, yeah, everybody's just kind of being worked down to the bone. You, you think you're doing well, but it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a, somebody that's overtired or, or, or keeked out like you, you're convinced that you're doing a good job because you're doing a lot, right? But yeah, but that doesn't mean that what's going out is quality. Yeah, it's just it's just quantity. Yeah, exactly. Like, wow, look at me! I just worked eight days in a row. But yeah. it's like, well, what did you cook in those eight days? Yeah, exactly. And, and what was it good? <laughs> I think it, for me, I remember thinking like when when I was first considering the four day work week, I m- my rationale in my head was if I want to hold people to a really high standard, which I do then I need to give them a big enough break um, that that they're rested and rely- and and recharged when they come to work so that way they can be held to a high standard. And looking back on that way of thinking, that's still an old school way of thinking because implicit in that is I'm holding you to a high standard. Like I'm going to be yeah. blessing your balls <laughs> all day and I get, and now I'm, I can be more of a jerk because you were rested so you have no excuse. Right. And that, that's, but what I found was that that's not what played out. What played out was once people came to work with a proper rest and an actual social life and God forbid, even a hobby or something, yeah. an interest outside of the kitchen, those people never needed to be held. Like we attract good cooks to North Navy yeah. and I didn't have to quote unquote, hold anybody to any standard anymore. People just did stuff better and, and cooked better food because they weren't exhausted. And well, and I, and I think there's, there's something to be said for just being in an environment where it, it, feels like you're you're seen by your employers and that your 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 struggles and and your your issues are are being taken into account like if you if you have a medical concern it's encouraged that you actually do something about it which (laughs) again going back to old school kitchens that just wasn't the way right like it's it was always just show up or you're useless was kind of yeah attitude yeah very much Um, like what have you done for me lately yeah (laughs) Like very much like a toxic uh, relationship, but uh, yeah, no, I think that a place like North Navy where you come in and and immediately um, you you feel supported in in what you're doing, and and you feel like there's there's a net where if you if you need something, you just have to ask, and it's there. Um, again, especially for a type of job where you're. It's it's difficult enough as it is. I think it's more motivating to want to do a good job if you know that somebody actually cares about you and your well being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it, it's for us it's it's paid dividends in so many different ways at North Navy, uh, but specifically the, what you mentioned earlier, the lack of turnover. It's yeah. impossible to make good food with high turnover. Yeah. If there's a kitchen that's flipping cooks over constantly the food just won't be good and there's no way around that there's no matter how good the chef yeah cuz you're constantly training yeah. and retraining and retraining so and nobody ever hits a stride if they're not there for an amount of time but. i want to end this conversation by asking you to uh make a prediction okay. and it's impossible for this prediction to be correct uh but i'm going <laughs> to ask you to do it anyways there's a lot of talk right now uh we talk about it a lot and and basically everyone in our industry seems to have an opinion about like where the industry is going post pandemic as we pull out of this there's there's a lot of concern that a lot of restaurants are basically sort of dead men walking like yeah. they're they're bankrupt they just haven't 
accepted it yet. And there's opinions about fine dining and opinions about fast casual and, yeah. and all these different segments. So I'm wondering just what you're thinking. You're looking around, especially in a city like Ottawa, with yeah. a lot of bureaucrats and, and people who never missed a paycheck for the for the entire pandemic. What, what's your feeling going into this? Let's get, let's get your Nostradamus <laughs> prediction here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I can't speak for anywhere outside of Ottawa because every city's food culture is significantly different. Um, but for for where we are, I like to think that w- there's still room for for restaurants like ours because I I, th- I think there's still a want to go out to a nice place and and have that sort of higher end hospitality and and enjoy a more creative meal than something that you might get at home um, or at or at a more uh, like fa- fast food kind of place. Um, Certainly the challenge now is is just the cost of things, especially as we're trying to take care of, of staff in the industry. That means paying more, which means we have to charge more to the customers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that the more conversations we have that shed light on that reality, I think the more people will understand that there, there's a reason for that that cost and and. Just like if you're shopping at a clothing store and, and you see a $5 t-shirt, well, there's probably something wrong if that t-shirt is only costing $5, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? It's the same thing for food. Or if you're going to a nice restaurant and uh, it's costing you the same as what it would cost to buy the ingredients at, at a grocery store, well, something's wrong somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I hope that the, the average diner will go to places like ours and, and understand that this means that the restaurant is actually taking care of their people and that that's something that you want to support. It's definitely going to be a bit more of a luxury. So I, I, I think you'll see people go out less often, but if it continues going how it's been, uh, I don't want to say post COVID still going on, but, uh, mm. but as things have sort of relaxed, I, I think we've seen it at our restaurant. Um, people are coming out and almost more excited to dine out than they were before. Uh, so we're seeing more people taking more courses and and sort of enjoying that moment uh, more. Um, so I, I think we will see more of an appreciation, but maybe at less volume. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's. I think that's as good a prediction as you're going to get. Uh, and that's yeah. sort of what I've been thinking too. Yeah, you're going to have people that as the prices go up uh, everywhere for everyone. Uh, it's it's just going to be inevitable, and and I like that point about like if you're gonna if you're gonna support the staff, then yeah. that's gonna cost money too. And I thought that was kind of one of the strangest phases our industry went through mm-hmm. when the customer wanted to know like where the chickens from, where the radishes <laughs> are from, but they just didn't seem to genuinely care about what the cook who is making yeah. the chicken and the radishes was going through. And and so that that was sort of uh, it was sort of like hidden in the in the cost of the meal was that there was like this, but but it, I don't think. It was as cynical as that. I don't think until recently most average people knew what it was like to work in a kitchen. Even my own friends yeah. when, when I was coming up in kitchens would be like, oh, you're working at this really good restaurant. You must be making like enough money. When are you going to buy a house? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm working at a good restaurant, so I make less money. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, that that's definitely a trend I see coming. Um, and, and I think your point about uh, – going out to like a fine dining meal becomes more of a special occasion. Yeah. There's just going to be less room for as many fine dining restaurants. Uh, it, it's just going to, you know, the, the pool of people going out on any given yeah. night is going to get smaller. And so we're going to be fighting over fewer customers, but who knows? 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, to say. all remains to be seen. So, uh, well, thank you for uh, trying to predict what's going to happen. <laughs> and thank you so much uh, for your time today, Eric. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to At The Pass. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a nice review. And feel free to get in touch. My email is adam at northandnavy.com. 